Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Over the past six weeks, I've mentioned a few large fraud attacks targeting online retailers. At first, all signs pointed to a data breach of credentials, possibly from another merchant, login credentials, because we were seeing account takeovers targeting some specific online retailers in specific verticals using stored payment methods with very obvious intention of monetizing quickly. Sometimes we see different types of account takeovers. I think that Mike Lewis and Sean Colpitz, when on the recorded panel that I shared from Card.Presence Virtual Summit in October, was very helpful in sharing that where sometimes you'll see them log in and check to see if the you know credentials work and all that and then sell them later. You know, these are very intentionally monetized as quickly as possible with stored credits, with loyalty points, with a digital wallet on file. That is their preferred method because they've seen more success on that than a stored card. So talked about that in episode 137. And then also how data breaches can be monetized and the other episode was called the new face of account takeovers and the anatomy of ATOs. And a lot of those episodes were I was providing that information because that's what I was hearing from retailers. And that is still happening. That is still part of this attack. Then I started to hear from other retailers that they were being targeted at a massive scale with new account fraud and guest account checkout on stolen cards, often shipping to a reshipper, a residential reshipper with slight address manipulations to circumvent specific fraud monitoring platforms. They seemed to really understand some of the Maybe not weaknesses, but nuances and exploitations and manipulations of specific fraud monitoring platforms. And I was seeing this weird pattern where the merchants that would contact me in a group in one week would be all using a similar fraud platform or similar providers. And then the next week, it would be a different provider. Again, I don't know every single retailer, but I can tell you that I have had the privilege to speak with at least 70 or 75 retailers in the last few weeks about this. So while I don't know everyone and it is anecdotal, I once a fraud fighter, always a fraud fighter, and you can start seeing trend analysis pretty clearly. So then it was a similar address manipulation tactic to different addresses all over the U.S. With every merchant that contacted me, I started to recognize similarities from previous conversations and identify new pieces of information. Like I said, trend analysis, it's in our DNA. When we've been in fraud for so long, it's like, wait a second, I heard that little detail from someone else. Are you also seeing blah, blah, blah? Yeah. And then tying it all together. I finally reached out to a CTO for a solution provider that primarily works with online retailers, physical goods. And I've described this person as if machine learning were a person were in human form. I try not to bother him too much, but I have relied on him before for specific MOs that are just impossible to understand. There was one where there were ended up being account takeovers on the issuing side. And so they were updating the address at the issuer, making it yes, positive to the fraudulent address. And those were ten to $20,000 a transaction. And when I 
talked to this person about that. He said, yeah, the one way we're finding this out is by plugging this into this and identifying if that was different or what country it goes to and blah, blah, blah. I'm not giving specifics for a reason. I am always conscious that this is a public platform, even though I know that if a little, if fraudsters knew about fraudology, we'd have different numbers. <laughs> but still, we probably have more listeners and we have a lot of listeners, but we'd probably have a few more thousand a month. I'm never going to be too careful. I am so grateful that so many of you and your peers trust me with sensitive information. I'm going to do everything I can not to lose that trust as well as to give away any of our big secrets. But a lot of this is common knowledge, right? A lot of the things that we talked about in today's episode will be things that wouldn't help the other side know how they're being identified, but we can still talk very generally. So when I talked to the CTO, he helped put many of the puzzle pieces together. I knew a lot of the pieces and I knew these three different fraud trends, but usually one group or one person is really specialized in one tactic, right? ATOs or these guys are specialized in new account fraud and carding or these guys are specialized in different things like that. This was all over. So I hadn't completely put them together, though the timing was different. It was similar and all that. He helped me put them together to explain who was doing this, all their their motivations. And probably the biggest piece was that all of these methods are connected. That was a week ago. And in the last week, I have learned so much and I've kind of joked that I might be turning into Russell Crowe's character in A Beautiful Mind. And I'm not trying to be insensitive at all to anyone. I just kind of feel like I'm this detective or something, putting all these pieces together from so many retailers. But it's also been so fun. I love to use this muscle in my brain as far as trend analysis and and, um, studying MOs and looking for similarities and throwing out the ones that aren't as common and all of that. And however I can be useful to fraud fighters on the ground, that's what I'll do. Even if it cuts into the majority of my Thanksgiving weekend here in the U.S., thankfully I have a pretty understanding family. So in the last week, I've set up two collaboration calls at two different times for different time zones for over 50 of the biggest retailers with websites in the U.S. where we were able to share common identifiers. One retailer would say, oh, we noticed this or we're finding them this way or they're all using this or something like that. And then someone else would say, oh, yeah, we are seeing that or we don't use that provider. But how are you? Oh, but we're seeing it this way. It's coming back as this kind of response or whatever it is. And so it was magic and very helpful to everyone. And like I said, I I can't share these common data points and patterns and methods here. And right now at the request of these retailers, I'm not able to share any of these specifics with any company, even merchants that aren't in retail. Really, it's because we give away any of these few ways that they're able to identify them. And we're very aware that not stopping all of them, but stopping as many as possible without impacting good customers during the holiday season. It's just a mess. It's a lot. And again, I cannot stress this enough. If you are a solution provider, do not reach out to a retailer right now. You will be on their list of insensitive and, and don't understand their business. This holiday season is already unprecedented, and I don't use that word ever. This attack is very unprecedented, which is why I've asked Shoshana Marini, my good friend and a favorite guest of yours and the co-author of Practical Fraud Prevention to talk with me on this episode about these trends and what they mean and the bigger picture, right? So I'm not going to share the details, but you can see the bigger picture and understand how fraud is changing so fast. And we go over some of the whys, you know, why now, why retail, why they're able to scale, which is a difficult topic. I'm 
just going to give you a little bit of a heads up that their ability to scale is pretty disturbing on the why. I've been hinting towards the fact that I have an amazing interview with Ian Mitchell and uh, one of his co-founders of The Noble actually about this trend from a month ago. And I have had every intention of releasing it this week. And then all of this happened. And I try to provide as much real-time-ish information to all of you, whether you support merchants or you are a merchant or you're in a bank and maybe you're seeing something similar on a different angle. That's coming, but we talk about that a little bit in this episode too. And I think that more than ever, that interview is going to be very relevant next week. As long as there's not another giant attack, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm knocking on as much wood as possible. But as you guys know, as fraud fighters, like usually groups will target, you know, one to two retailers at a time or even stick to one vertical, right? Shoes, car parts, food, toys, electronics. Because in the resale market, they're you know, trying to get customers in whatever way they're reselling it, whether it's shipping it overseas and selling it for higher prices or whether it's triangulation fraud, which I've talked about quite a bit and will be talking about in just a few minutes with Shoshana. They'll use one method, right? And they'll specialize in one core tactic and then they'll do it until it doesn't work at one company and move on to the next. Or they outsource and solicit help from other criminals via dark web and criminal channels on Telegram and Discord and others. But in this case, we have a lot of information that indicates that this is one large insulated criminal enterprise with all of the skills needed and not just fraud, but some cybersecurity skills to try to access data, to try to DDoS attack core companies that merchants rely on for information and fraud prevention. They really are targeting solution providers in a way I've never seen. And you might think, well, how would they know who so-and-so uses? Well, because of some regulations like GDPR in Europe, as well as CCTV in California, and a few other things, the majority of uh, a few other factors, the majority of retailers and merchants in general and all companies have to disclose in their terms and conditions which companies they share consumer data with. And that is going to include solution providers. So I this will be a whole other episode at another time. There's going to be a whole big retrospective postmortem, whatever you want to call it, with so many lessons after just this last week. Black Friday and Cyber Monday were very targeted this week in specific ways and more can be shared when it's not as fresh. And I do have confirmation about things, but I'm just trying to be very judicious in what is shared in which platform or in, to each audience, essentially. So essentially, you know, they have all these different skills, right? Not just in fraud, but cybersecurity. So there hasn't been chatter to pinpoint, right? Most of the, I mean, a lot of the merchants that first contacted me, the first question was, is there a list somewhere? What are people hearing on the dark web? And I'm lucky enough to have connections there and really asked for help there. And, and it's pretty quiet about this specifically, right? There's still all other kinds of fraud going on, including refund fraud, which I've been saying forever, this is going to be the biggest holiday season for refund fraud. And I'm not trying to laugh. It's just like, it's a perfect storm. Without meaning to be hyperbolic, retailers will not be getting a lot of sleep this in the next six weeks. I certainly haven't. That doesn't mean anything. I'm not looking for sympathy. I It's my choice to really help as much as I possibly can. And that includes, I mean, my phone keeps vibrating. I forgot to put it on silent while recording this intro because of a, a group of merchants that I have contact with in real time through you know a messaging app where we can share information in real time. And it just keeps, probably because it's Cyber Monday, which I mean, 
honestly, they have a lot to do, but they're all trying to like either ask each other questions like, is anyone else, you know, experiencing this or that? Or they're saying, hey, I'm seeing this or that. And we're being very careful not to have any PII that's shared, any specific PII, but there is a lot in general trends that can help each other. And I will never stop believing and advocating for the power of collaboration. And I am so grateful that so many people trust me to kind of coordinate this. It's something that has been needed for a long time. And I kind of just, I'm putting it off. It's like, okay, well, at this point, there's no question. So anyway, this is a very long intro and I apologize for that. But I really wanted to just explain all of this a little bit before Shoshana and I dive in. Because this group has multiple skill sets, once one method like an account takeover or stored on a stored payment method is stopped by the retailer or their service provider, they then adapt really quickly and it hit them again. So it's clear that they're tracking every successful order as well as decline to continue to adapt and shapeshift and manipulate not only the retailers, but the specific fraud providers they're using. There is one, I mean, not all merchants have all of the resources that others do, that some of the bigger ones do. And there's one larger one that has noticed that even as simple as seeing them, you know, maybe refresh a specific screen or use the back button at just the right moment, it might bypass something. It's insane. And a couple of retailers have started calling this group the manipulators. I suggested shapeshifters, but it's whenever we use This is massive. And another one of their tactics and reasons why they're successful is because they're hitting each company thousands of times a day. It's part of their strategy to overwhelm the retailers as well as their providers. It's a numbers game, right? If they get a thousand orders, if they try a thousand orders, they might get 20 or 30 through, depending on the merchant as well as their service provider. I think I've said this before, but I have never seen so clearly that the providers And the people in charge on the fraud side, the fraud leadership and the structure of organizations within fraud are critical for this because some companies have been more prepared than others. Well, back to my conversation with Shoshana, I want to set the stage because I feel like we really just dove in to this topic when we talked. And I just wanted to give a little bit of specifics to people who might be like, what exactly are we talking about? But while we planned to talk about, hey, we should have known better. While we planned to talk about this fraud ring and and everything around it for under an hour, it quickly became a two-hour conversation. So the second half of the conversation will be released on Thursday. Generally, it's Thursdays around 4 a.m. Eastern, if you really want to set you know, your clock to it. Even if you're not in retail, if you're a merchant, a bank, a fintech, or a fraud vendor, this is there's a lot that needs to be learned, even without the specific data points and methods that retailers are identifying them now. Those specific data points will change, and we know that, but the overall methods and patterns and group and the whys and the hows and all that probably won't change. So that's why I actually, whenever collaboration, other than this one specific example and the last couple of calls I've had this last week, generally I say we don't need specifics from you. You know, obviously each merchant knows what they can and can't share with each other, but we don't need to know name and address. That's going to change, right? But it is helpful to know what geolocations that, you know, they're targeting from or just those little things that the patterns, right, that people won't change. And if you train a very large group of people to do something, if you're going to train them all the same way with the same slight identifiers. So the behavior won't change as much as the data will. That's what I'm trying to say. So we talk a lot about the data. And I cannot thank Shoshana enough for joining me. We ended up recording until after 1 a.m. her time in Israel on a weekend. 
I am so lucky to not only have her on speed dial, quote unquote, it's mostly international messaging apps at long distance to Israel, but I've also been working with her on a few sponsored content projects that will be released in 2023 that we really believe are going to be very helpful to the industry. And we cannot thank the companies who have offered to sponsor this work for us to get that out to the community and industry. More on that later. There will be more that I hope that I can share over the coming weeks. But again, Shoshana and I thought it was important to share all that we could to help the audience and fraud fighters in general know that times are changing. The game, quote unquote, is changing. And even if you're not the target now, you need to start planning to be able to change and adapt your defenses quickly. I've been using the zombie metaphor that I you know, talked about in an episode back in October for nine or 10 years now, and it's never been more relevant than now. I and mean, we're seeing it in real time where they're adapting and morphing to defenses very quickly. And I kind of joked with Frank McKenna in a text yesterday. I said, I really think that this organization and the way it's set up and their methods and their data collection and their stored CRM, essentially, and everything else that they're doing. I really think that this is what you or I would create if we suddenly lost our moral compasses. It almost feels like it's people who think in the same way that we do, but on the opposite side of the fence in more of an organized and the sophisticated way than I've ever seen. So with that, I always try to be more optimistic, but I also want to be realistic as well. So with all of that, I know this is a very long introduction before an amazing conversation that I have with Shoshana. And this is the first half. Second half will be released on Thursday. I really hope that this is helpful. If you have any other additional information about this that you'd like to share, either with you know details with the retailers or with the larger audience, feel free to reach out to me. I'm trying to manage my LinkedIn and my email as much as possible. I also thankfully have an amazing assistant now who's also helping me. So Thanks so much for listening. I can't wait to hear what you think of this conversation and I will talk to you soon. Well, if you've been listening to Fraudology over the last few weeks, you know that there has been a really big fraud storm brewing, especially targeting retailers with physical goods. And I've kind of been able to provide bits and pieces as it's been happening in real time. But over the last week and a half, I have put a lot of pieces together with the help of some amazing friends and about 60 of the biggest retailers. And one of those friends who has helped me put those pieces together is Shoshana Marini. And I asked Shoshana to come back because I know you all love to learn from her. I do as well. And also, I thought we could just talk this through and talk about why is it happening and really build up the story. And then we'll really talk about what is happening as well. So Shoshana, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast a little last minute. It's such a pleasure. I think especially with a scheme as complicated as this one has turned out to be, it's just easier to think it through when you have someone else to bounce ideas off. I couldn't agree more. I try, I've tried to talk about it over the last few weeks in solo episodes, but I feel like now that we have so many more of the pieces, mm. there are parts that you can really fill in the gaps in that I think you do a much better job explaining them and then vice versa as well. And I mean, I never saw this getting this big, right? Like when we were starting to see the signs, I never thought it was going to be like this. 
I was literally just about to say the same thing. I don't, at the risk of sounding hyperbolic, I've never seen anything like this in my career. And I don't think anyone has. And I don't think we understood the scale of it until fairly recently. Uh, you know, obviously we'll talk more about that, but this is just, and it, I mean, and this storm is still coming, right? It's not like I'm, we're talking about a hurricane after it passed. We are right in the hurricane. So because it is a public podcast, we're not going to share all the details of how this scheme is being found, but we're going to share a lot of information to help you understand why it's happening, how it's happening, and some of the ways that retailers are identifying the individual orders that belong to this just giant fraud attack. I don't think we can overstate how much this has blown us away once we really put all the pieces together. In terms of the complexity as well as the sheer scale. You don't normally look for something like this, especially not in the middle of the holidays when you are so busy looking for everything else. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why we know it's a scale is because of merchant collaboration. I mean, I'm so lucky that so many retailers reach out to me when they start to see something weird or different. And then I'll post enough about it on LinkedIn to get other people's input on it. And I have just had so many messages in my inbox. Oh, we're seeing that too. We're seeing that too. Can you be in? And over the last week, I've had two different calls at two different times because they were the week before Thanksgiving in the U.S. So the busiest time for retailers, but, you know, had two calls with about, I think, in total, 45 retailers. Uh, there's you know more than 60 that I've talked to about this, all kind of sharing little bits and pieces. And then, you know, one person that wasn't a merchant, but that is just so brilliant that I go to when I'm really stumped, put it all together. So with that, we should probably dive into what we're talking about. And I guess I'll say we're going to start talking about triangulation fraud. It's something you've heard me talk about on previous episodes, but I want to be clear that while triangulation fraud is a very big piece of this, it's not the only tactic being used. And we'll talk about that a little later too. I think also given the level of the complexity of the operation, which will become clear as we go through this process. I think it's also important to bear in mind how valuable collaboration has been in unmasking this on like across industries, across verticals, including vendor participation with some exceptional vendors out there. And I think that given the timing, which is very clearly not coincidental on the part of the fraud attackers, I think it's really, really important to bear this in mind as we go through everything we talk about in this podcast episode to understand that this is, as a solution, collaboration is a trend that is only going to become more essential. Time goes on and fraud attacks like this become potentially more common as, as scale and complexity become things that we just have to take for granted and work around. And I think it's worth bearing that in mind from the beginning, even though we are also probably going to end somewhere in the same place because like there will be an upward spiral in terms of the coherence of the conversation because that's one of the very clear messages that I have at least taken from this. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It hasn't just been on the merchant side. I've you know been able to clue in some of the vendors that I can tell just through talking to different retailers have a hold on this. It's been, I mean, I've been saying that not all fraud providers are created equal for a very long time, but I have never seen something where you can actually see it in real time. Every mm. retailer I've talked to is being attacked by the same group. And it is very clear which fraud providers have the technology and have done the work and have really invested not just you know money, but resources and, and time and training and all that to be equipped for whatever comes their way, to be adaptable. There are 
many others that aren't. And it is very apparent. It will continue to be apparent in the merchant losses. It's been very clear to me, just even with merchants participating in the calls that I've hosted, the ones that are panicked, the ones that are very unsupported by their fraud providers. In one case, one core fraud provider told their clients, we don't have any way of identifying this. And they just kind of shrugged. And ouch, I've never heard anyone admit that before. I guess points for honesty, though. Right. Yeah. I think they also know that in the holiday season, nobody can rip out a, a core fraud solution and put in a new one. I mean, I had some creative ways of, of how they could do it if they wanted to. But it also is a big reflection on the merchants as well, not just the companies and how much they've invested in being prepared for anything, but the leaders who are continually looking at reporting and end to end and trying to figure out why is this one indicator higher than it usually is. The leaders who have created an organization around fraud where they have someone who's really good at the tactical and really good at putting together, you know, MOs and Montferendi and, and figuring out, oh, this is tied to that and that and that. People that are good at the strategy, that are good at product. Mm. Having all of those different elements, I've been able to see just such a clear best practice in fraud team leadership and organization, as well as fraud providers. And then they're the processes and the policies. So it's it's been such an interesting learning experience, but also quite just enormous. And I did not know what I was getting myself into when I was like, sure, we can always go. <laughs> 40 non-billable hours later. Oh, at least. <laughs> and the rest. At least, yes. But I mean, I yeah, there's something about being passionate. It's like, eh, I mean, it'll all come out in the wash. But yeah, non-billable hours is right. But I spent several hours of my Black Friday writing up a five-page report to send out to retailers so they understood everything we knew about this fraud-related issue or this fraud-coordinated attack, as well as the some of the indicators that can help them write rules that are very specific to this group. Again, I'm not going to share those ones because we don't need to share them with the attackers. No, we're going to be particularly kind with yes, this Yes, we are. Yes, yes. But we can share a lot. So I guess probably the first part is to kind of talk a little bit about triangulation because it is the one piece of this that I think a lot of companies don't understand or don't understand the particulars of it. And I think this is really the piece where these groups are monetizing the most. And that is the hardest to identify. So we'll start there and then we'll just kind of go toward putting all the pieces together for everyone listening as well. Cool. So, yeah. And I just cannot thank you enough for hopping on on a Saturday. And it's like 1145 p.m. your time. So you are just such a rock star. But, you know, we're going to start at least for when I saw triangulation first. And I have to give credit to the person who taught me about it because he's no longer part of our fraud family. It's Ryan Wilk. Talked about him on many episodes. He... I love how much a part he is of this podcast still, because he would obviously have loved it so much. It's so great that he oh he would have been very on it, frequently, so yes. you know, mentioned and and given credit where credit is so valued. Yeah. I try to give credit to everyone, but I can't give credit to people that are working at, for retailers or can't be publicized. But he can, and I want. I feel like as long as we keep saying his name, he still lives, and there are is a pretty good group of us who all of our careers were exceptionally impacted by him. So absolutely. I mean, Robert Capps is one of them. Holly Sandberg is another. And there's several others who have not been on the podcast. But yeah, so when I first started working at the Trade Association, Ryan was one of the first people I met. And he said, I'm starting a ticketing group because a group for ticketing and travel. 
And I had just come from Expedia, but you know, I didn't understand all the nuances of concerts and event tickets. It's certainly not the way I know them now. And he explained to me, we're seeing a lot of triangulation fraud. And I'm like, what? And he had started out at one of the theme parks in Orlando, Florida. And so that's where they first saw it, where criminals would use stolen credit cards to purchase park passes that didn't have dates on them. They sometimes would then do specific dates later, but that's, I could write a whole book about the history of fraud if I ever <laughs> had time, but you'd do a much better at job at it anyway. But yeah, so he, so criminal would buy a park ticket or several park tickets on a stolen credit card. They would then advertise park tickets for a lesser price on online, right? At that time we were, I mean, this was 2011, 2012. So things like Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace wasn't a thing, but eBay. That's right. Craigslist back in the day. Oh yeah. It was the Craigslist was the big one for them at first, but then there started to be specialized websites. And I mean, even I in Washington, probably the farthest state from Florida in the lower 48 within the US, like I knew about friends who were like, oh yeah, we just met a guy in the Walmart parking lot and picked up Mm. tickets for super cheap. Well, you know, what would happen is then the park would get a chargeback for that ticket and the customer, the person who's going to the park, they think that they legitimate ticket. But sometimes if they went to go use the tickets after the chargeback was filed, they would be kids in tow, ready to go to one of the biggest Mm -hmm. theme parks in the world and be told that they couldn't go. Ryan had to work out and the teams at the other theme parks within Orlando as well. They all worked together and found similar, again, collaboration, found very similar patterns and people and all of that. But it was a progressive cat and mouse game, just like all fraud is. Because once fraudsters find a way to monetize off of your company, they're not going to go away quietly and quickly. They're going to keep trying to adapt. So... That was where we first saw it. We then saw it with concert tickets because there was always a market for, you know, the popular concert tickets. The problem with concert tickets and theme parks and all that, though, is that the and even gift cards, we've seen triangulation on gift cards, especially since there's been gift card marketplaces and things like that. Third party, like resellable gift card marketplace. But the merchant can take those back, right, because they're digital. So they can cancel them. Um, They're difficult conversations to have with customers. Sometimes some companies will still honor them, but they'll say, hey, this is the only time, this is why you need to buy these things from us. That's a different problem, right? Like that's a policy problem. That's a business problem. From the fraud perspective, you're like, well, we we fixed Mm, it. Yeah, 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 you're right. And then it's about talking to customer service and explaining, right, right, the policies. You're absolutely Again, internal collaboration, Right. <laughs> but yeah, everybody knows you and I both have drank that, the collaboration Kool-Aid a long time ago. <laughs> I think that's why we, we bonded so quickly, so fast several years ago. Yeah, it was, it was on that it. note. Yeah. But yeah, so then we could kind of saw it over the years on different things. They kind of go here and there, especially around the holidays. That's why I talked about it when I was talking mm-hmm. about holiday fraud long before I knew this was going to be turned into what it did. I say long before, but I think that was just two weeks ago. It just feels like a year. I haven't been getting a lot of sleep between Twitter and FTX and everything else, but that's another story. <laughs> it's been a long two weeks. It's fine. I actually also, I first heard about triangulation at the holidays as well. I yeah. I remember very clearly when it was and like where, what, like what I was doing and where the setting, because I really liked it as the answer to something that had been bugging me for a little while by then, which is like from the fraudster perspective, you went to so much effort to steal something. Mm-hmm. How did you know you were going to monetize it? And I'd had like all of the explanations of how fraudsters monetize and how they know where to sell and who to sell to and which items right. to target. And I was like, yeah, I do get all of this. I understand that a decent percentage of the time they'll sell it for more or less what they want. But like, 
But how do you know? That's so much effort to go to when you don't know. And I mean, I'm very risk averse, so I'm not really the profile for a fraudster, but right. it had been bothering me. And then the holidays came around that year and people were explaining about triangulation. I was mm. like, that's amazing. That takes all the risk out of it. You're literally stealing to order. This is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's terrible. It's horrendous. It's like, oh, right. it's like poisonous <laughs> in the ecosystem, but we can have respect for the methods. Right. I mean, right. Not respect for the people, but we can have respect for the method. And I think another reason why there it became harder for them to know for sure what people would want to buy is that, you know, there's the obvious things, right? Of course, consumers want a good deal in quotation marks, mm-hmm. so they don't really ask questions. That's and the reason why fraudsters can market so low is because they don't have any overhead. They didn't pay any money for it. So they're mm-hmm. able to mark items for way below what the MSRP, what the retailer even paid. Sometimes it's below cost. And so there obviously there were obvious things, right? Like, okay, everybody wants a good deal on an iPhone or a laptop or whatever. But what about when you get to those specific things, right? Like clothing, what size do they want? Mm. Bikes, what kind of bike do they want? Coffee makers, what kind of coffee maker do they want? And there can be some obvious ones like, okay, this is the coffee maker of this year, right? Or things like that. But I think one of the reasons why they started to adapt triangulation in retail is because merchants got good at tagging high risk SKUs. Yep. So, you know, okay, we know that the laptops and the iPads and, mm-hmm. and all of those things are within our website are going to be targeted. But do we really think that this specific accessory for this specific gaming headphones or this Lego set are going to be stolen? Like, not really. So, right. And there's a beautiful randomness to it as well. There because is. you are, you're, you're crowdsourcing the items that you're not going after the hottest things of the season. You really are asking people what they actually want and people want a myriad different things. A hundred percent. Yes. So we've seen this over the years in different ways, right? We've seen it in sketchy websites. Yeah. Those, those are the early ones. Like really, yeah, like like phishing emails, right? Like yes. you knew if you were looking out for anything, it was very clear. Yeah. And you could also even look at, I don't know how many times, like one of my sister's friends or somebody that I, who I knew through someone else would contact me around the holidays and say, hey, is this website legit? And chances are, if they're asking that, I usually say, probably not. But if you think it's not legit, <laughs> then it probably isn't. It's not but an insult I'm to them. Just, they're not I'm nostalgic though I'm, for that now. You're like, oh, in the day when, you know, it was so like, easy so to spot. spot. Yeah. Well, and you, I would just honestly, I mean, I wouldn't even go out to the website because I didn't want to. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what That's it has on yeah. it, whatever. Yeah. So I would just go into domain who is and see when they, you know, where it was registered and how old the site is. Yeah. And yeah. it's like two weeks old, you know, or what are they selling? Well, they're selling Nike shoes and they're selling vacuum cleaners and they're selling furniture. Well, mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense for a business model unless it's like Costco, but they're definitely not a name like that. But or, that was the second, the second wave of it, right? Like when yes. these beca- began, as with phishing emails, became much easier mm-hmm. to spot and people did start wising up to it. And I think also to an extent, companies became a little bit more yes. aware that there was this thing. Mm-hmm. Then there was this next wave of like, well, it, it might have been Costco or, you know, any other brand that, you know, that, that you love. But good copycat sites, beautifully done, like pixel perfect, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. nice, tiny, tiny things wrong. Yeah, like, yeah like, they like, hired designers, they'd invest in mm-hmm. SEO so that theirs, you know, was towards the top and people are in yeah, a hurry. And they did. They're they shopping at retailers yeah, yeah. for holidays that mm-hmm. they don't usually shop at because their niece or their nephew asked for something specific. So they're not like, oh, this isn't a website I haven't heard before because they probably haven't heard any of those websites. You know, they're legitimate. So, you know, they're not looking at the URL. Is it spelled exactly the way? You know, they're just not looking at one character things. difference. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's not, you know, an English character, right? So it looks like an English character, but it's registered as a different domain. Mm -hmm. Like there's just so many of those things. And then 
you know, I think we also, you reminded me of when we were talking just a few minutes ago about the copycat apps. I I had forgotten about those until you talked about them. So I'll let you kind of, you know, talk about that for a minute. I think, I think they're easy to forget about because they were, Mm -hmm. at least from my perspective, I've I've been tracking this like quite closely over the years because Mm -hmm. of that initial moment of fascination where I was like, oh yes, this is the solution. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other people business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. So from my perspective, this was like the next evolution of the copycat sites when Mm -hmm. websites, particularly, you know, like large brand websites, they become aware that this was a problem and they sometimes had teams who were actually looking out for them to try and close them down. But they hadn't considered the possibility of fake because it was just too early. We were all too fresh for that to be, you know, like an obvious concern. And there were, and it was the holidays. They all popped up in the holidays. It was a holiday trend once again. And it was both... Apple and Android. I'm sure Apple will not like to be reminded of that. They were, and they were better. They were fewer, for right. sure, on the Apple Store than their own. But, the, but still, you got through. And there were some that were for companies that didn't have their own native app either. Oh, so yeah, they hadn't got there yet. Yeah, oh, so long ago now that there were some that didn't have yet. Mm. And then you have this horrible tangled situation where somebody's already claimed the domain. Now you're battling with an established which, you know, has been probably used many times by this point. Yeah. And in general, this triangulation has a lot of happy customers because they are all receiving the goods that they ordered and they are all receiving them for a great price because you are able to do that because you didn't pay for any of them. Right. So like it can take a long time to kind of unravel that scheme. And it's so challenging to unravel it because it's going to different addresses, right? From the mm-hmm. merchant's perspective, from the legitimate yep. merchant's perspective. They're not all going to the same address. They're going all over the place and they are random items. But, you know, Mm. if you think about the reason why the holidays are so big, I mean, there's several, right? But I mean, obviously consumers want to get a good deal and they want to get the right gift for the person on their list. 
But also, when is another time of year when pretty much everyone in the world, well, and especially the Western world, are shopping at at all the same time and they're shopping for other people. So it's not uncommon to have a different shipping address than the billing address. It's not uncommon to see a customer that you've never seen before because, you know, again, their grandchild or their best friend's child wants something very specific. You'll go out to a website you've never shopped at before. And so it can look risky on the merchant side, but they're very used to this, right? And sometimes they're adjusting their rules so that they are looser on that when the billing and shipping address aren't the same or sure, it's a new customer. At the yeah. same time, because there are so many customers and they're trying out new sites, they're on the merchant side, they're particularly sensitive to have a good customer experience and not turn people away and to make it an experience that people will want to come back for. Yeah. So they have, I mean, to an extent, they have to be looser and the fraudsters are very willing to take advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it more challenging. And then a few years ago, I saw quite a bit in talking to retailers was kind of a combination of all of these things. So there would be these master websites that would get pop up around November or so, and they do a whole bunch of ads on social media and drive traffic their way. And yes. they would have all the same pictures as legitimate retailers. And you can tell, right, if you're used to shopping on a specific website, you can tell what the photography looks like like Mm. for that website, right? Maybe it's the style, maybe it's the filter, maybe it's Mm -hmm. the coloring, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be watermarked. You can just go, oh, yeah, that's probably for, you know, Target or Walmart or Wayfair or whoever. And I'm just listing these off as examples. I'm not saying anyone specific is victim of this or anything else, just saying as examples for people to follow along. But subconsciously, that's really powerful on the consumer side because... If you like this idea, it it is, this is like Mm -hmm. subconscious often reference with this brand that you trust and probably you've been on their site many times. These are the products you buy. These are exactly the images that you are used to clicking on. Of course you're going to click on them again. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you're like, oh, I mean, it looks the same. I trust that brand and I trust that, you know, they must be legit. And these pictures Mm -hmm. are legitimate. You're not thinking, oh, they probably copied them or, you know, scraped them off the web. And a few retailers called me about them at the time. And one of them, I was really frustrated with it and I didn't blame him. And they were trying sure. to, con- he, I think, first reached out to me to see if I had a contact at the company where the domain was registered, which I did to see if they could have the website oh, that's taken interesting. down. Yeah. Yeah. So that was why he called mm. me first was like, Hey, I looked on who is, I see that the domain was purchased through this domain Whoever. company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know someone there that I can talk to so I can have them shut this down? And I was like, absolutely happy to send you an intro. But then as we're talking about it and he's saying how they're using all their photography, I was like, isn't that a copyright issue? Totally a copyright I, issue. I was telling you this earlier today. And I love you this. Rightfully, I you love rightfully this. so confused and like, what? But <laughs> the company that this fraud manager worked for didn't really seem to care that much about a copycat website selling their products, even though it wasn't turning into monetary loss. It was turning into monetary losses, but they were... Also, reputationally, this is terrible for your brand. This is horrible. You should be invested in stopping this. Kind of, but at the same time, the consumer's like, wow, I got this package direct from a legitimate retailer and I didn't buy it from them. That's not... You're like, I'm not going to care. Now, if the customer needs a refund or an exchange, or if their, you know, order is now associated with a chargeback and they're marked as on the negative list, that's going to be a challenge for them. And it absolutely happens. 
And on these sketchy websites, it's not uncommon for their credit card to be used in a triangulation purchase another time down the That's road. That's right. It's self-perpetuating. That's one of the great things about triangulation fraud, that it just goes. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, because the yeah, they effective. keep getting new new card numbers, new information. Mm-hmm. They're asking for all the things that yep. they'll need to use for a future purchase. You don't want your brand anywhere near that. No, you shouldn't. But yes, but, copyright was the thing that worked. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. But... The company cared about the copyright. They cared about the fact that their pictures were on somebody else's website. That mattered to them. And so they I hate that, in that that is how you managed to solve the problem. But I do think it was brilliant that you came up with that solution. Well, I think it was like a brainstorming thing. I remember like both of us, you know, kind of coming up with it together. But I was like, I wonder. And I said, I think I know of a company that does that for marketing because I know somebody that went to work there. Maybe talk to them. And sure enough, like when I talked to that company, they said, yeah, you know, usually it is triangulation websites that we're shutting down. But it's the marketing department that's paying for it because they do not want their copyrighted Mm. pictures out on other. They don't want. And that is because of a brand issue, right? They don't want. But I think from a marketing perspective, they're thinking, well, this website has pictures of our items on it and they're saying that they're selling our items, but they really aren't. So just no merchandise is going to come. What marketing isn't realizing is, no, 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 they're also going to order it from you and send it to the customer and you are now out the product and the money. And that was the missing piece. And so that merchant went to talk to their marketing department and explain the financial impact as well. And hey, were you aware of these websites? And it was very quick. They were shut down because of copyright issues. We also saw at around the same time, a few of the very specific things that were on like everybody's Christmas list or everybody's holiday list. Mm. You know, you can usually tell based on what every big box retailer yeah. has on sale for Black Friday. They would put up a kind of a standard ad on a marketplace. And, you know, say like we have 250 of this coffee maker order now before it goes away. So they don't have it on auction, but they have a buy now price. And they know that that coffee, make- that people are going to be searching for that coffee maker. They know that the marketplaces invest in SEO for their items and they're going to show the cheapest item on, you know, a Google search page or whatever it is. So then they put it up there and it just sells itself. And then they just keep putting in the order for the coffee maker over and over again. And they know either exactly how to use or how to exploit the website for the retailer that makes that coffee maker. Or they also have all these other websites that sell that coffee maker because it's yeah. a brand and they sell it wholesale. Mm-hmm. So they have multiple options. So they aren't risking reputation and bad reviews on the marketplace because if we can't get it direct, we'll get it from one of these other companies. And we you know, have really have specialized in this. So we know exactly how to get around it. Like That's what we've been seeing. I think also the marketplace piece is tempting from that perspective because with these previously, like all of the previous incarnations, there's really a lot of work involved, mm-hmm. especially once you got to the more sophisticated versions where like, so we pixel perfect copycats. It's yeah. a lot of work. Whereas if you're on a marketplace, one of you the wonderful things about, yeah, one of the wonderful things about selling through a marketplace is that they have wonderful infrastructure to make it easy for even first time sellers to work out what they're doing and get set up and make things work. And if you are fraudster who has time that they can invest into making sure that the process is smooth, you learn the policies and you learn exactly when you're going to be able to take money out, transfer money, whatever, you can start to do this more efficiently. It still was subject to the main, I don't know, limiting factor, let's say, with triangulation fraud until very recently. 
Yeah. Before we dive into that piece, I wanted to just make it full circle to your first initial point Mm. is that by using marketplaces, right, there's very little overhead because you aren't Mm. buying your web hosting and everything else. And payments processes, like there's so much. Oh, right. And tricking a payments processor and all Mm -hmm. of that stuff, which has gotten harder. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's gotten much more difficult over the last couple decades. But I think that the other pieces, there's really no overhead for them at all because they don't even have the merchandise that they put up for sale, right? right? So they can just they steal up, to order. Yeah, yep. they steal to order instead of made to order. It's steal to order. I like that's that. Right. <laughs> they really should put that on the. No, I'm <laughs> but that's going to be a new a new thing. I just wrote that down. That's awesome. Yeah, it's steal to order, and so they don't have to worry about oh, I have all this merchandise that I already put the work into because it's not about their money, but they put the work into yeah. it. They can put up 300 ads on a marketplace. And if five of those items get purchased, then they're only putting in the work. Right. Mm -hmm. It's all profit. They're only putting Mm -hmm. in the work, in quotation marks, to commit fraud on those five items that hit. And so there's there's very little loss to them. And to your point, now I just I wanted to kind of button that up as we now move into what the one limiting factor was for them to really have this be more than just a one-off thing here and there on the holidays. Can I say it? Yes, please. It's one word. The limitation has always been scale. And that was a great thing on the fraud prevention side because it's otherwise it's a really sweet deal for the fraudsters. Yeah, but but it's a lot of work, right? It is. It is a lot of work. Putting up the ads and managing those ads and getting back to those people and then placing an order and making sure it's successful, that it's going to ship to them. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, acting like customer support if they didn't get it or, you know, anything like that. And doing all those pieces and stages takes a lot of different skill sets and takes time, right? So yeah, it's always worked in our advantage. And I don't think we ever, and even though I knew this missing piece or I knew about it, I never, I didn't link it to each other until a few days ago, that we never really thought that there would be scale because sure, you can use bots, but those are detected, right? We can detect bot activity based on speed and everything else. They're not foolproof. And certainly when there are retailers that sell that drop a certain popular type of sneaker all at once or do like a flash Mm -hmm. sale or have on sales for ticketing companies for like they release the tickets at 10 a.m. on Friday and like, you know, they go, they're sold until they're gone and they sell in 12 minutes. Like other than those, bot activity can be fairly detected. So we And these scans also play out over like a long period of time, generally speaking. Like, you know, you're talking weeks rather than days and maybe you're even going to make it through to months. Like, you know, this isn't the kind of like, okay, quick, 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 like the tickets are on sale for 10 minutes and you have to get it in there. Yeah. They want it to be a sustainable business. I mean, consumer places an order, right? And it can be at any time. So you have to be monitoring. You have to have those email addresses up for a while. You have to have, you know, I will say on the marketplaces side, on the seller side, there is no fraud on these, right? They're using legitimate payment methods. Mm -hmm. There isn't uh, even bad review. You don't even get the feedback version. True. Like, you know, negative reviews like that one star or whatever. Well, yeah, they uh, know that reputation on the seller is important. And sure. so a lot of them have been like actually sitting on these accounts for many years. Mm-hmm. And maybe they just started selling things for a while, but it says member since 2018. And then it'll say like 1,000 reviews. Now, if you dig deeper, all those reviews are in the last month or two, but they all say, wow, I got it so fast. It was perfect. It was great, which then keeps up the momentum for Mm -hmm. more customers to trust that seller on a marketplace to make more purchases. And you're right. It takes time to build that momentum. They're essentially building up a, you know, a shop. Right. Right. There are a lot of legitimate business owners that have storefronts essentially on marketplaces. For sure. 
So yeah. they're making it look as legitimate as possible because they want to make sure that they can keep keep it up. So if they used a fake address or if they used a stolen card to put up that marketplace site, it wouldn't work. It, so right. it does have to be long term. So and and on, on the subject of the, the aged account, I am just going to flag the like yeah. hand over issue, which I know we talked about last time. But yes, like very much so that there the really point. is this investment in what looks like a legitimate business. And I think there, there always used to be an extent to which the more they invested on, on the, the legitimate business looking side and the fraud side, the better it was. I, I remember mm. a very charming almost example back from the days when everything was posted on, on like social ad. They used to target by location. Yes. Which you mm-hmm. could do on Facebook. And they would always have this like core group. In, they'd have a number of different like stores, different groups that they'd be targeting. Right. But each one would be location based. And so you would have this group of people who looked like they would be all living very close to each other. And like maybe the address doesn't perfectly match, but this is pretty legit. You know, they're, they're two, yeah. two roads down, like kind of thing. And that was from the fraud prevention side, one of these kind of like charming things where you're like, oh, I see what you're doing. Clever. Oh, right. Damn it. Clever. But from the perspective of restraining scale, the better you make it in that respect and, you know, mm-hmm. in the other kinds of ways we've been talking about, the less likely you are to be able to do this en masse. Right. And I well, think right, that was, yeah, that was the, like a saving grace of, mm-hmm. of triangulation from the fraud prevention perspective. Well, well yeah. And right. And one, one other thing too that you just made me think of is the marketplaces have gotten so much better at this too, right? Mm, they yeah. have really cracked down on people who are advertising items that never sell or that never get shipped. I mean, that, so, right. hey, I've got this MacBook Pro for sale on the marketplace. You send me the money. I never send you the product. But they're cracking down on that based on when they send the money to the seller and all these different policies and, and things within trust and safety that also roll up into fraud prevention. Yeah, and like marketplace so, integrity is really something yes. that good marketplaces invest in now. It's not just yeah. a buzzword. It really is something that they invest in. Like it, it's with critical. Their, like money and resources as well as the, the nice talk. Yeah, so that's why these criminals have to do the long game, right? It's why they need mm-hmm. to fulfill the orders. It's why they need to have the ratings. It's why they need to keep these accounts. It's why all the things. So, Which takes time. Right, exactly right. So the as we've said a few times now, the only reason why this hasn't been the biggest thing ever and why it hasn't blown up is because of scale, because it takes so many human hours and so much time and it invested in quotation marks because they're not investing money, really their own money anyway. If a few guys do it in their basement, they can only do so many orders, right? Because there's so many steps mm-hmm. between the selling and the buying and the shipping and, and getting that order successfully through on the merchant side and understanding, you know, what type of fraud you need to do and that and everything else. But and let's not be sorry for the few guys because like they are individually oh gosh, making no. like a very nice paycheck out of that. <laughs> yeah. But at least right. it's not a big this problem why, for us. Right. Yeah. This is why it was like single whack-a-mole, right? Like, oh yeah, we've seen these guys are targeting this or oh yeah, this. And they'll, they'll come in waves and it'll, it'll attack you know, a retailer here and then the retailer will find them and identify them and then they'll move on to the next. And Mm. I've seen it for years, right, in supporting merchants. And it's not to say that there aren't large dollar losses associated, but compared to what we've now seen, it, it seems like not very much because now we've seen this scale up to a point where every retailer I can possibly think of and that I know, some that would probably surprise people, are being hit by this and not even just a little bit. This is like 
massive, like thousands and thousands of orders a day. So they're also trying to just overload their system, every single retailer at the same time. And as we were talking about how, I remembered an article I read. And then I remembered an interview that I did that honestly was going to be put out three weeks ago, but then the Twitter thing happened. And then I didn't want to put it out over the holiday weekend because it, it is a really tough subject. And then I was going to put it out this week. And I was like, no, well, now Shajana and I need to talk about this. But this is actually great, though. This is the perfect intro. To I think this is a very, good intro. Yeah, it keeps getting more and more like I'm like, I mean, I we recorded this like six weeks ago. I knew it was important and I knew it would change the game. I didn't know exactly how and what it would like first. But the article I read and the conversation I had with Ian Mitchell and another incredible human that works at the Noble with Ian is that organized crime, especially in Southeast Asia, that traditionally made their money through sex trafficking, women and children and, and men through, you know, immigrants and, and other, you know, vulnerable populations, they would often human traffic them and, and use them for the sex trade. Well, COVID hit. And there's now this infectious disease and a pandemic going on. And then you also have all of these international task forces being set up with international agencies that are making sex trafficking a number one priority to catch. And so these businessmen think, well, hmm, it's making it harder to do sex trafficking, but we can still profit off of human trafficking. And what better way is than to force them into what we sometimes refer to, and now it sounds kind of callous, as human bot farms. I think that we've always, you know, for the last few years, we've known that there are human bot farms. We've seen pictures, we've heard stories of, you know, but I think we all assumed that those people were willing participants. Not and that has been the case. I mean, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, it has been well in some cases. You're right. You know, like, yeah. okay, well, it's it's a low paying job. It's and it's you know like it's not very prestigious, but it's better than some of the other local jobs. And it's slightly kind of like a call center, right? In it's a a very country, very yeah. like that. And mm-hmm. actually, you see, actually, sometimes you have stories around that, like the similarities between mm-hmm. legitimate call centers and and the fraudulent equivalent. Yeah, I think and what's nasty here is that there's this shift where like, oh well, we used to kind of accept this as like part of the game, and now you're into something that's like really dirty and disgusting, and the kind of thing that fighters try not to think about because we usually focus on the financial aspect, which is There's a reason why I'm not in content moderation in trust and safety for a social media company, right? Like I don't have the stomach for it. I'm too much of an empath. And the first article that came out in ProPublica a couple months ago was really focusing on scam calls, right? Like outbound calls. But they talked about how prices for people as they were being bought and sold through other organizations were based on their skills of words per minute and English language proficiency. And can they just click buttons or can they do more? And there were prices on each person based on those things. Kind of, it's modern slavery. It's what we learn about in the Western world and the 16, 17 to 1800s, but it's happening more and more. And especially with civil unrest in various countries, whether that be Ukraine or in Asia more so in Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia, etc. It's popping up everywhere. And it's not just the outbound stuff anymore. And we have reason to believe with a lot of evidence. There is no way that Shoshana or I would come onto this podcast if we did not know that all of these were tied together and that this is true. 
I can't show my work product because then that would be, you know, tipping our hand to bad actors who obviously don't want to be caught on anyone's systems for as long as possible. But I've talked, like I said, I talked to over 60 of the biggest retailers. I've been mapping this out. I swear my office looks like a beautiful mind of like mapping it all out. And again, I mean, on billable hours, but there is no way I could just sit back and not do anything. And I, there's just, that's the fraud fighter in me, right? And so there's a lot of nuance to it. There's a lot of differences, but the way that they've been able to scale up this triangulation that is hitting merchants and has been hitting retailers since the middle of September, we have enough to know that it sure seems like, I mean, it it looks like a duck and it acts like a duck, right? Like, do I know exactly where these organizations, these specific fraud rings and organizations are and who's working for them specifically? No, but is there enough signs that these are humans, that this is scalable, that these are all coordinated and together and they're all being trained by the same people or all sharing each other's homework, essentially? Absolutely. And so that's why we feel like it's safe to say that that's unfortunately what the driving force of the scale is on on this issue. Something I also found noteworthy in the ProPublica article, and also there was a good piece in Vice, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a couple. There was also an individual analyst that did one on pig butchering about these yes. groups that right. I sent all parts to of the same thing. Very as well. So. Yep. They're yes. all, they're all part of this. Yeah. They're all focusing on different, different victims, but all yeah. with the same motivation. So actually it's good that you bring up pig butchery, which is also very relevant here because something that mm. I found interesting from these articles, like, you know, the picture that these articles are, are painting is that mm. there is combination going on, like in fields that have historically been kept very separate. Mm. that had the groups who were working in human trafficking and you would have groups who were working in fraud, in scams and romance scams even frequently kept very separate. Cyber security and data breaches. Also, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like in these articles, you see like very, very viscerally and physically, but, you know, from our side also more kind of in terms of the higher level, these are not being kept segregated anymore. These are now feeding into one another and enabling one another. And that's something that we're going to have to start taking into account when we're planning prevention strategy because like for example i mean there's no way to talk about this without feeling like it's just something sick anyway say so in this example you're talking about human trafficking and you say well we have hundreds thousands of people we have skills we know exactly which skills which one has so we know who should be typing We're doing who like should be on office a phone. professional skills yeah yep like the testing yep. that a temp agency does yeah mm-hmm. And you can work out who's good at the romance style scam and who's good at the the Bitcoin or the insurance style scam and mm-hmm. and who will be great at helping us run our tri- triangulation scam and who will be a good like office manager effectively of our online store. You have to suddenly take into account that you have this range of criminal enterprises which are now all working together, not for only one purpose, because like as a fraud fighter, you're only going to see a slice of that, mm-hmm. but for a purpose which is now far expanded from the kinds of operations that would have been possible two years ago. Yeah. And I think it is a failure of imagination, right? Because like I said, I knew that human trafficking was starting to be used to propel fraud scheme. But all that I knew so far was about the external scams to consumers and the pig bitchery and the, the warranty scams and all of those the gift card scams with 
that you owe a government agency money and you need to get gift cards. I knew that those were tied to it, but one of the things that should have been kind of a clue to me, and I know that there's a podcast episode to show proof of this, and now it seems like it's very stale, but when I came on to talk about, I think there's a data breach out there. You know, everyone was saying, well, throughout this, the one of the biggest reasons why so many retailers have reached out to me is because the first question they're asking or somebody in their company has asked, is there a new list? Was there a new data breach? Because that's what this looks like, right? This scale, this massive amounts of scale. We've seen this before when there was the Home Depot breach in 2013, the Target breach in 2013 or other types or Equifax, right? We saw it with new card fraud and new account fraud and then in other pieces, depending on what's stolen. And that's why I went through this whole like anatomy of a data breach. I was convinced because there was so much evidence, you know, everything tied to, well, it looks like there's a specific company that was breached. But what I've learned since is, no, they were just kind of patient zero. They were the first company to see, to get targeted by this ring. And it started in mid-September and it started in clusters. And that was what, you know, vendors were saying, as well as merchants and what I was seeing too. I told you offline some company names. And it was so clear to me. It was like ripple effects of like patient zero. And then the second one was their Mm -hmm. direct competitor. And then after that, it was within that vertical. And then after that, it was similar items. But all of them were focused on monetizing as quickly as possible. They were store, stored credit, loyalty points. They were using payment methods on file and they were all items that could be easily resold. At this point, Mm -hmm. we weren't seeing triangulation yet evidence of as much triangulation as we were more like reshipping fraud. But one, you know, there were some ties together that made it very clear that this was the same group. But I thought, gosh, it's got to be. But one of the things back to what you were just saying is there was no list, like basically mm-hmm. put a bounty out for three of the like biggest and well known. I, go, well, I don't know if they're well known, but the biggest and smartest dark web intelligence companies that I know. And I said, hey, if you guys can find it, any specific list or breach that is feeding all of this fraud that we're seeing, I will credit you on LinkedIn, the only social media I use these days because I'm that big of a nerd. But yeah, I will credit you on LinkedIn and I will tell you know everyone, hey, this company found this list. They were looking. I know they were because they know who follows me and you know they'd love to work with them one day, but they couldn't do it. And they won't find it because this information is now exactly as right. precious to that criminal organization mm-hmm. as your customer's personal information is to you as a hmm. legitimate business. Wow. That's a good way of putting it. I it's think like it, their CRM. It, yeah. And I think that actually highlights the two things that I think are really worrying and noteworthy in this case, which is the result of the scale. I feel like we're saying scale a lot. I don't want people to just think, that, oh, this is big now. It's not just right. this big. Mm. It means that they are highly, highly prepared, organized. Mm. To, like just to an extent that I would just not have anticipated previously. And this is where that, that, that CRM is coming in, right? Like it's not yes. that there's like, oh, well, there's one source. It's that there are many sources put together from multiple places, yes. which they have now in a format that they can work with very efficiently. I am so lucky to know so many different people that are looking at different angles of this. And so I do know that we're able to trace back some of the sources on it, right? And some of the sources are from like older data breach information that was sold in dark web that has, you know, was just kind of held on to. Mm -hmm. And then there's other information that was pulled from credential lists. And then there's others that were pulled, you know, from their own sourcing and their own information, honestly, from these scam calls, right? They're all feeding into each other. And like triangulation, it's very self-perpetuating. Yes. And as we know, if you have a piece of information from here and from one from here and one from here. Yes. 
you can put them together to get something yeah. much scarier than you started out with. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you can create targeted scam attacks if you don't know mm-hmm. one piece of the information, right? Okay. Well, we don't know Which, their- Again, based on scale, they now address. can. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we're going to do a scam to try to get that email address and add it. It is absolutely like having a CRM. It's absolutely like legitimate businesses that have their core customers and you guard that with your life. You have a lot of security around it and you keep it internal. You don't share it with anyone else. You keep it within Mm. your organization and you use it for different purposes. Sometimes it's for marketing. Sometimes it's for reaching out. Sometimes it's for monetizing. If you had a credit card, okay, that. If you had one department sending a phishing email and now you know their password for a very large merchant because you sent them a phishing email that looked like that merchant, and you did a mirror website and had them log in, now you have their login information, right? So they're getting this from so many different sources. And that's why there isn't, we can't tie it to one list. There's no chatter on any forums. There's, I mean, yes, there's typical fraudster chatter on Telegram and Discord and the dark web, et cetera, but not tied to this big giant thing, this big giant group. These guys are insulated and we didn't see them coming. The other piece I would say, and I know you and I have both seen this as well, is that some of the companies, you know, especially the bigger name retailers, have seen some of this activity here and there since 2018. A lot more retailers have started to see it from 2020, but like an order attempt here and a login attempt there. They were gathering intel. They were looking at how can we exactly hit this company because they know exactly what defenses you have and that you don't have. And they also know what provider you use because, and I don't know, this is, this could be bordering on conspiracy theory, but when we first started seeing this, when I first was getting calls and I thought it was linked to a breach because it was all account takeover and it was all credential stuffing at the time and we were seeing it in little groups, it was almost exactly based on who the merchant's fraud provider was. It was like the first four merchant victims that I knew about. And again, there might be others. I don't know everyone. But the first four retailers that I knew about all used the exact same core fraud provider. And then the next three all used a different fraud provider. And it like it's kind of been crazy. Now it's all over the place. Now everyone is using it. But when they first started, that could just be correlation, not causation, but just leaving it there. Yes, but given the level of preparation that we've seen from them and like and the efficiency, it's not implausible. I mean, you can only guess about that kind of thing, but it's not implausible. Yeah. Which no, ties to the other thing that I wanted to to flag, but which I want you to be actually talking about, which is the number of levels of this siege. Yeah. It's not just one attack, right? We're seeing it in different levels depending on what merchant defenses are based on the fraud technology that they use, the core provider they use, as well as the additional layer of verification or authentication or multi-factor authentication based on the structure of their fraud team. Do they have every core element of fraud fighting really covered? And there are some people who can cover three, right? I'm very lucky. I'm kind of a one I had to be. It's not because I'm like smarter than else. It's because it was a necessity. Back in the day when I started my own team, I had to be the person who identified the fraud rings and identified the solutions and identified and did the analysis and looked at the tactics and so like all those things, right? And the people manager. But there are other people that are just epically good at finding the fraud, right? 
crazy little details of like, oh my gosh, all these things, this is what makes it fraud. And this is what ties it all together. I'm lucky to know some of the best ones that some of the, you know, most of them are big companies, but not all of them. Some of them are at smaller companies. And I'm like, whew, you've got that like bloodhound. You know, you're able to really sniff it out. There's other people who are like, oh, well, this is how we need to solve it, right? Okay, give me the data and tell me what they're doing. But then what if we were to put this up front? Or what if we were to put that, you know, defense? Or what if we were to add this layer? There are other people that are good at different things, right? So you need all those pieces. So you need a good solution. You need the right team and then the right policies and processes and requiring different things at checkout versus at the time of needing to reroute a package or other things like that, right? Really working out what are we going to require? And it is always going to be a balancing act for that one because we also have to make sure that we're not canceling a lot of good orders, right? So the solutions and strategy piece is always going to be a tightrope. Because you can't just put, you know, everyone needs to re-enter their card every time they make a purchase. Because I've had three different retailers over Black Friday weekend that have said, oh, we need you to re-enter your credit card. And I appreciate it from a fraud perspective, but my credit card's upstairs in my purse and I don't want to go get it. <laughs> so I close it out and I'm like, oh, maybe come back to my cart later. Like that's happened. Well, and you're a fraud one, fighter. You actually get it. I, I 100% get it, right? <laughs> So you can't do that all the time. That's why targeted friction, you know, Mike Lewis talked about on a previous episode on account takeovers is so critical, but I'm getting a little bit more in the weeds there. I really hate to stop this enlightening conversation here. And I promise I will get a little bit more into the weeds on this second episode where we dive in even more to the why and the how of this specific group. We wanted to kind of set the stage on this episode of some of the history of triangulation specifically, as well as kind of the evolution of that trend and other methods and tactics that we've seen. We know that triangulation is not something that every company knows about. And so every type of company knows about. So we kind of dove in there. But on Thursday's episode, there will be more information as much as we possibly can share. And I know that a one hour episode is much more digestible than for this audience than if you saw it were two hours, which is why we're splitting it up in two. But I always feel bad about that. So if you're not subscribed to Fraudology, make sure you are now. That way you're alerted as soon as part two of this conversation is published. It's we usually try for around 4 a.m. Eastern time. That way you can just know, oh, yep, it's on. We'll listen to it. Share it with your team and your network. I know some of you guys share this and stream it with your team at team meetings and then talk about it afterwards or kind of lightly assign it and say, hey, we're going to talk about this later. Whether you're in retail or not, this is all relevant because this is this is what is going to be happening soon. I have no doubt that because it's being successful now that we need to be able to adapt very quickly and to have as much data as possible from now on, essentially. Another reason why we needed to cut this in half was my poor editors have done such a good job with my last minute episodes lately, but I wanted to give them time to edit the second part too. So if this episode has been informational, please rate Fraudology on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and even better, leave a review on Apple. I'm told it helped other people with similar interests find this podcast. A big thank you to today's sponsor, as well as the production team at the Rolled Up Podcast Network and the incredibly talented editing team at Hosky Media. I, without them, this episode and all of the episodes would not sound as good as it does. 
So with that, guys, I hope you have a good rest of the week. I know that it's a lot, but at least I hope you know, especially with fraudology and LinkedIn posts and other things that you are not in this alone. And I will talk to you again on right before Thursday's episode. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.